0: Before I introduce our next speaker, I just want to say that after his talk, we'll take a five minute break and realizing that some of you may have to leave for our, uh, other engagements, uh, but we'll take a five minute break and then we'll reconvene for a question and answer. Uh, I will collect the questions ahead of time, and uh, during the question and answer, uh, Jonah, uh, Deacon Levy, and I will be uh, available f- to respond to the various questions. Uh, So with that, I want to uh, introduce Deacon Barry Levy, who was just ordained a deacon last June for the Archdiocese of Washington. (laughs) He serves uh, as a deacon at St. Mary's Church in Rockville and uh, is the director of the Myers Clinic in Rockville, and he has 23 years of experience in uh, clinical psychology and so he brings a great perspective to this issue. We've heard the, the personal witness. We've received some of the uh, philosophy and the theology behind it. Now I think uh, Deacon Levy brings a, another perspective that is very helpful, that of the clinical experience. Please welcome Deacon Levy.
1: Thank you for that introduction, just for technical note, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, not a clinical psychologist, but I want to thank you all for being here, for welcoming me, and this is an extremely vital topic. I'm sure that's why you're all here. We're talking about God's revelation as it affects our lives, our own lives, our brothers, our sisters, perhaps our husband, our wife, perhaps even our parents, mother, our father, Friends, the church, the body of Christ. So this, this topic is extremely vital for all of us, and I just agree with everything that's been said so far and said so well. The thrust of it all, really, is holiness, the universal call to holiness. And our, our lives are directed toward God, and that, that works out in every area of our lives. The talk today will, will be focused, on, my talk will be focused on that, that the truth, our truth, is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word, only in Jesus, does the mystery of man and woman take on light. We only know who we are because Christ has revealed to us who we really are. By the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, we're revealed. Man and woman are revealed as who we really are, and our supreme calling, that call to holiness, that call to heaven. How many people here want to go to heaven? Oh. There was a school kid, and school teacher said, how many of the children here want to go to heaven? Everybody raised their hand but one kid and said, Johnny, don't you want to go to heaven? He says, not right now. (laughs) So I hope you're not all ready to go to heaven right now, but pretty soon, right? So... The universal call to holiness and the chastity, that virtue that goes with it, converges. There's a convergence of that call to holiness with the best of research, the best of psychological research on this topic. Now, I I stand here as a deacon, but also as a psychotherapist. As a deacon, I'm not apologetic at all. But as a psychotherapist, I'm a bit apologetic because there are very few psychotherapists that would stand here and take this position for a variety of reasons. But the research does show that the best of psychology converges with the best of the science of holiness, the science of the saints. And this all converge with spiritual direction to offer help and hope to all the persons struggling with same-sex attraction. I'm gonna organize my talk around the cultural myths and the misbeliefs, and you might call them lies, about homosexuality that distract people who experience these same-sex attractions. As Father Scalia said so, so brilliantly and so clearly, th- these, these attractions are a distraction for these people who who experience them, a distraction from the direction of our lives, that call to holiness. So these are four myths that are floating around out there. Um, The 10% myth, the myth that homosexuality is harmless, that homosexuals are born that way, and once gay, always gay is is the phrase. Now, I just want to say, uh, Father Scalia said a a, a word about terms. I want to say a a word about terms also. First of all, (laughs) there's no such thing as a homosexual. The word homosexual, homo means the same. Sexual means difference, right? So the word makes no sense if you really analyze the word. How, How can you have sex with the same? Okay. I was looking up this morning, I woke up early this morning, went, went to my dictionary again to make sure I was on track with that. All the dictionary definitions talk about sexuality as between genders. Now, even gender, I don't like that term very much. Gender has to do with nouns, right? There's a, there's a masculine gender and a feminine gender noun. We have different sexes, but sex is a verb for most of us, not a noun. So the, the language is a little, a little crazy. And gay is not synonymous with homosexual. Okay, not all homosexuals are gay. And I don't use the term homosexual very easily. I like same-sex attraction term, people who are experiencing an attraction. Uh, Joe Nicolosi, who, who's a teacher and mentor of mine, uh, he is a clinical psychologist out in California. Uh, somebody called him up and said, is my son, we, we want to come and find out if my son is a homosexual, and he said, let me stop you right there. Your son is not a homosexual. So what do you mean? How do you know you never met him? He said, no one is born homosexual. Everyone is born heterosexual. So there are heterosexuals who have a homosexual problem. That's the way he puts it. So we're going to look at some more of these myths. The first myth, 10% of the population is homosexual. That, that statistic came out of the, the Kinsey study, I mean, that report was extremely flawed. No study has ever replicated it. His sample selection methods were very distorted. For example, a lot of his subjects were people in the prison population. So put two and two together there, right? That's the only available partners there were, were same-sex. There were other problems with his um, studies, which I'm not going to get into, but they're, they're quite shocking. So the facts are... The estimates vary by definition, how you're defining the terms there. And, but on the average, there's between 2.8% of men and 1.4% of women. And that comes out of a study, uh, Sex in America, 1994. Now, the French and the British surveys done in 92 found 1.1% of men and 0.3% of the women had SSA, same-sex attraction, homosexuality, by a certain definition. In America, in in 2001, only 14% of the American public in 2001 knew the correct statistic as 3% or less. Why is that? Have you noticed the way the culture is going? In 1989, there was a meeting of some very, very smart, well-funded gay activists trained uh, in Harvard's public relations department school who got together, and they, they put together a document called After the Ball, And that document detailed what we are seeing today and what we've seen since then about how to influence public opinion to normalize homosexuality and the gay lifestyle. Pretty good public relations people, wouldn't you say? Another myth. Homosexuality is harmless. The fact is that homosexuality is frequently associated with many physical and emotional problems. 97, New York Times article, a young male homosexual has a 50% chance of getting HIV by middle age. Would you get on an airplane if there was a 50% chance that it was going to crash? I don't think so. 1998, 54% of all AIDS cases were homosexual men. 90% of these were acquired through sexual activity. This is a dangerous activity. There's been a 14% increase of HIV AIDS among homosexual men between 99 and 2001, including other forms of STDs. The life expectancy for homosexual males is from eight to 20 years less than heterosexual males. The risk of getting anal cancer soars by, that statistic is correct, 4,000% for those who engage in anal intercourse. This is not a harmless activity. And the Kinsey Institute published a study of homosexual males living in San Francisco. They reported that 43% had had sex with 500 or more partners. 28% had sex with 1,000 or more partners. And 79% said that half of their sex partners were strangers. That's a phenomenon known as anonymous sex, people they didn't even know who they were, perhaps they didn't even see their face. This is not a harmless activity. And uh, Maria Zeradu is in uh, the Netherlands. Uh, She found that even among supposedly stable homosexual partnerships, homosexuals have an average of eight partners a year, outside of their allegedly monogamous relationship. You know, I didn't put it in here, but there was another study that was done by by two gay psychologists who wanted to prove that 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 these homosexual relationships were stable. And they found dozens and dozens of the best relationships they could, and they found that 0% were monogamous. 0% of them were faithful to their partner to the point where they said, if you want to have a happy, stable, long-term, gay relationship, don't expect fidelity. And so they redefined fidelity, meaning that, well, I'm not going to have an emotional relationship with anybody else. So that's the best that you can expect. This is not a harmless activity. In the mental health area, homosexual males experience major depression 71% more it's compared to 14.5% for heterosexual males that was the percentage who experienced these symptoms illicit drug dependence heterosexual 11% homosexual 42.9% suicidal ideation heterosexual 11% 71.4% for homosexual males and suicide attempts right 1.6 for heterosexuals 28.6 among homosexual males so the Cambridge University Press study that was done in Australia. Not a harmless activity. Next myth. People are born gay. Fact. There is no conclusive evidence, biologically or genetically, that homosexuality is inborn. This is a myth that has just flown through the culture. People just believe this. It's kind of a half-truth. A half-truth is like a half-brick. You can throw it a lot further and more accurately, but it's still not true. People are not born with homosexuality. All are created male or female. Therefore, all human beings are heterosexual by nature, right? Homosexual is a contradiction in terms. Some heterosexuals have a problem with same-sex attractions. All the studies claiming gay genes have proven flawed inconclusive, flawed by design, inconclusive by determination, and irreplicable. They've never been repeated. The most famous one, the Hammer study in '94, was never replicated. And, and his study was, was more of a statistical analysis. I'm not going to get too far into it. There's some wonderful literature out on the table out there. The Family Research Council has a nice book. They don't have it up there, but it's called Getting It Straight, which has lots of facts about the research, getting it straight, Family Research Council, even Amazon sells it. Simon LeVay did a study in 1991 where he dissected the brain of quite a number of cadavers who, who had come out of the gay lifestyle, and he found a tiny difference in one area of the brain. It's called the INA3 area. It's about, it's about this big, right by the hypothalamus, And he detected that there was a slight difference. Problem is, he he also never mentioned the fact that almost all of his subjects had died of AIDS. Slight difference there. And, well, he himself said this. It's important to stress what I didn't find. People are making conclusions about his study, but he's saying what he did not find. I did not prove that homosexuality is genetic nor did I find a genetic cause for being gay. I did not show that gay men are born that way. He himself said that about his own study. That's the most common mistake people make in interpreting my work. The INA-3, that area near the hypothalamus, is less likely to be the sole gay nucleus of the brain than a part of a chain of nuclei. It's really a part of a chain. I won't get into all that technical stuff, but since I looked at adult brains, we don't know if the differences I found were there at birth or if they appeared later. Now, one of the initials after my name at the, the front there was BCN, which is Biofeedback Certification in Neurofeedback. I spent several years studying the brain, studying how to do EEG biofeedback. So I had to take some uh, quite, quite a bit of um, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology. Got into it with one of the professors And this was an extremely intelligent, extremely knowledgeable guy, and he said, and and of course, you know, the the, the brains of of gay men are different than the the brains of normal men. Raise my hand, how do you know that? And he he just backed up, he he kind of fumbled a little bit, went back to the LeVay study, and I said to him, you have just gotten through explaining to us neuroplasticity. You all know what neuroplasticity is? It's, It's the ability of the brain to change throughout our lives. It's the reason that n- never give up on anyone or anything at any time in life. You can always learn. It's it's a, t- it's a wonderful thing. We can always learn something new. But it's biblically right. Behold, I make all things new. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Well, con- science converges with that really nicely. So I said to him, you've just gotten through telling us about neuroplasticity. How do you know that the brain changes weren't caused by behavior? And he just glared at me and said, we're not getting into that here. This is a smart, good scientist, so baloney. (laughs) Identical twin studies have been done. So if there is a gay gene, like for blue eyes or blind, anybody ever seen identical twins? Have any of them had different color hair? Different eye color? No. They're coded for that. So if we're coded for homosexuality, there would be 100% correlation, one twin with another, but there's not. We do know that there's about 38% of the time that the identical twin is homosexual. So why is that? Well, genes are responsible for an indirect influence, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But they do not force people into homosexuality. Now, this conclusion has been well known in the scientific community for several decades, but it has not reached the general public. Most people believe the opposite. We're born that way, not true. So then what does cause homosexuality? Well, I don't like to use the word cause. I think that there are influences. Now, I've I've been treating people with same-sex attraction since the early 90s, about 91, 92. I was working in a psychiatric hospital, and people started showing up who wanted help. They wanted therapy. They didn't like being that way. It, it was in a Christian unit of a, of a hospital, by the way. I, I'm a, I work in a explicitly Christian clinic and people come because they, um, have a Christian worldview. They understand reality that way. So people were coming for help and I didn't know how to help them. Well, never give me a challenge like that and expect me to stand still because I got some neuroplasticity to spare. <laughs> so I did a lot of studying on this stuff and, and, What I have found, I've never seen two people with the same story. I've never seen two people whose same-sex attraction came out of the same exactly type of background and with the same configuration. So these are influences that I have seen. Biology. Father Scalia mentioned temperament. I'll speak about that a little bit. I have seen quite a few psychological issues with the same-sex parent and with the opposite-sex parent. And sometimes with both. Sibling issues. uh, Dr. Nicolosi, uh, when he talks about this, he says, you know, he says, he says, my wife always tells me never, never use absolutes when you're speaking to public because, because people are going to, you know, get all bothered about that. He said, but he, Joe Nicolosi says, absolutely, I have never seen someone with the same sex attraction who had an older brother, a younger brother, who didn't have an issue with that brother that was significantly contributing. He said he's always seen that. We heard a little bit about that this morning. I don't want to presume, but I think there's lots of lots of times you're going to see those issues with, with, with a sibling, same-sex sibling. Sexual abuse, molestation, and trauma are huge issues. Mockery and bullying, lots in the news, and rightly so. I mean, if there's one thing that I would want to impress... Father Scalia did such a great job of it also. The dignity, the value, the worth of the human person, every human person, every human person, we we need to view as a potential saint. They're on their way to heaven. You you never know when that little little tug is going to happen in somebody's life. That's how we have to see everyone. So the mockery, the bullying, it's awful, it's horrible, heinous, egregious, and contributes also to the attraction. Uh, Dr. Fitzgibbons Richard Fitzgibbons up in Philadelphia uh, is convinced that this is one of the premier factors and features in the development of same-sex attraction is the peer influence uh, the fantasy life, the pornography and masturbation tremendous influence at reinforcing the attraction introspective self-pity uh, there's a book out there by Gerard Van Ardweg. name escapes me for the for the moment something about Normal battle for normalcy. That's it. The battle for normalcy. Van Ardweg talks a lot about the introspective self-pity that he sees quite frequently, and of course, or the cultural reinforcements. Biologically, we've said there's no homosexual gene. There may be some hormonal factors and features and influences. Um, some of you are familiar with Janet Smith, Dr. Janet Smith, out in Detroit, did a wonderful talk on contraception. Why not? She's also waded into this area. She says she loves a good fight. Um, she was given a talk at the last uh, one of the Courage Conference, last Courage Conference. Said, I, "I love, you know, this is this is a really nice audience, but I really love a good fight." So some people in the back started booing her, just just so she'd feel more comfortable, you know. <laughs> she liked that. She liked that. Um, but she, she's got a, a set of CDs on sexual common sense. One of them is called "Hormones Are Us." And she talks about the tremendous uh, influx, especially of estrogen in in, in um, foods and the water supply, things like that. So, the, and there have been uh, excessive estrogen in in the womb. Some people consider to be an influence. These are influences, influences, not causes. I think body type and body image distortions very, very important. Um, physical disabilities. I've treated quite a number of people with same-sex attraction who've had physical disabilities. Uh, you'll, you'll see why, because, because th- there's a tremendous sense... If I wanted to cut to the chase, I'd say that, that the same-sex attraction uh, is, is a gender inferiority. I feel inferior as a man. I, I'm, I'm looking... And this particularly for male homosexuality. Male homosexuality... Like all things male, is quite simple. Female sexuality, like all things female, is quite complex. <laughs> so if you get if you get the male stuff, you're about a half a step toward understanding the the female same-sex attraction. It's 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 different, and it's a lot more written on the male. So you see uh, the physical disabilities. You also see uh, this a little confusing phrase: physical, sexual, gender nonconformity. I'm going to have to do better on the next slide with that one. But basically, if my body type doesn't fit with the typical body type of other men, I'm going to start feeling this gender inferiority. Okay, And that's somewhat true for the females as well. If they don't look like the typical female, if they're not, they call hot. If the guy isn't studly, uh, good athlete, these things, I mean, I, I don't know how, with the incredibly beautiful people and airbrushing of, of all kinds of ads, I don't know how you can ever get a good self-image physically. Anyway, it's almost impossible. But that, that that can be a contributing factor. Temperament. Okay, the highly sensitive people. There's a wonderful book called Highly Sensitive People, um, by Aarons, I think it's her name is. Really good book. But but sensitive type people tend to more toward this disposition. Artistic types. Um, you know, I find a lot of people, <laughs> here we are in, in, in the stage here, I find a, a lot of people, especially the men who, who have same-sex attraction, get into the theater. It's that whole you know role of, the idea of fantasy, the idea of being somebody other than I am. Uh, there was a young fellow that um, came home and told his mother that um, he got a part in the school play. She said, oh, what's the part? He said, oh, I'm gonna be the father. And she got furious. She said, you go back there and tell them you want a speaking part. (laughs) Just told you that one so I could have a drink. The Jacob types. What do I mean? Jacob and Esau. Okay, you've got the Jacob, the stay-at-home, kind of the, the more friends with mom than with dad, the older brother. I mean, Jacob was a total setup, right? But he found his... Rachel, um, people have opposite gender interests, right? The, the, the little boys who, who like Barbies, who like um, cooking, who like the girl things, the little girls who, who can beat up all the little boys in the neighborhood, things like that. And intellectuals, sorry, folks, and we tend to be more in this camp. Now, issues with same-sex parent. Same-sex love is a human developmental need. We all need to, to know and to love, and we're all interested in people of, of our same sex. Uh, that, that's how we learn. That we, we, we're mentored, especially men. You know, for, for men, masculinity is, is an achievement. It's not a given. Femininity is a little bit more of a given, but it's really tough. And, and, and in some ways, perhaps, that's why there's more male same-sex attraction than female. It's really tough to make it as a man, if you think about it. It's an achievement. First, the man's got to separate from mother. Then he's got to face father. Then he's got to face the whole world of men, which is all about competition. You've really got to fight your way to be masculine. You've got to fight for it. That's all there is to it. It's tremendously an achievement. And those who fall by the wayside can really develop this this sense of inferiority, especially if we're not cut that way. But we, we need same-sex love. We, we, we grow by, by loving people of, of the same sex as ourselves. This need has not been developmentally fulfilled, uh, people with same-sex attraction, often due to some kind of trauma, often involving same-sex parent, uh, perhaps caregiver unavailability, that silent father I was joking about, the father who, who may be more masculine, more manly, more of the athlete like we heard this morning, whereas the son is different. He's more the sensitive type, more the artist. So, so there's a, a, a malattunement. And so this identification with this is how I learn how to become a man, I want to be a guy like my father. If I can't make it that way, there's a tremendous sense of what we call gender emptiness, okay, or a, um, a defensive detachment. So rather than attaching to my same-sex parent, I will detach, I will defend myself because it's a place of pain, it's a place of rejection, it's a place that I can't measure up. So these attachment needs remain unfulfilled. So same-sex attraction we see, we can see often as a drive to repair this sense of gender emptiness. Okay, That's true for the man, to some extent that's true for the woman as well, where you've got this same-sex disidentification. And so that's why they call it repar- reparative drive or reparative therapy. People get all insulted about the idea of reparative therapy. Oh, you want to repair me like I'm a bad transmission or something. No, the drive to, to same-sex attraction is your own drive to repair this missing link. I, I often talk about that as the Wizard of Oz syndrome, right? You had the lion who didn't think he had courage. You had the tin man who didn't think he had a heart. The straw man who didn't think he had a brain and was looking for somebody else to give him what he already had. Okay, so that's the reparative drive. Issues with the same-sex parent. So Joe Nicolosi says the origin of SSA is in unmet emotional and identification needs with the same sex. Elizabeth Moberly says um, she's the one that coined that phrase reparative drive and um, defensive detachment. I'm looking at the time, and I'm going to move on. But the bottom line, by repressing the normal need for attachment, the opposite drive for restoration of that attachment is strengthened. So we have a drive to repair this gender emptiness. Um, in the North Bulletin, in 1998, North is the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. NARTH.org is a great resource for people who want information about this. 100% of the research participants stated their father or father figure was distant, uninvolved in their upbringing, frightening, or unapproachable. 87% spoke of a mother who was close, controlling, and overbearing. Now, since this is sort of a true confession for him here, that was my history. My father was a really scary guy. My father used to show me pictures of guys whose teeth he knocked out in the Navy. He used to say things like, if if I ever touched you, I'd kill you. So That's why I don't ever lay a hand on you. Well, that's not sufficient to not terrify you. And I had a really close Jacob kind of relationship with my mother. Now, I'm an ever straight This is my wife, Diane. You want to stand up? I've got a beautiful wife. Proud of her. Okay? So the guys come to me. They call me an Everest straight. But, you know, I I couldn't figure out why I was so interested in this subject. But the more I read the literature, it was really painful to me because, wow, I resemble that remark. (laughs) All over the place. I saw my own history. Why I did not develop a same-sex attraction, God only knows. There was just enough of a connection with my father, I think. Because even though he was scary, he used to call me his pal. And he did come to my football games. And I tried to do all that stuff. I was a terrible football player. But I tried, okay? And there was there was enough identification. And I really like girls. I just always really like girls. I don't know why. I think I'm made that way. And I think we're all made heterosexual. And that's the point. I'm just going to digress for a second. Because uh, during Jonah's talk, my, my, my wife leaned over to me and said, how come he wanted to get married? How did he get to that point? And I asked Jonah that later, and actually I'm going to let you answer that question yourself later, because you said it was a really good question. But that's part of it, that we're 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 born with that heterosexual drive. Okay. Issues with the opposite sex parent. Now, particularly for homosexual men, there's frequently an overly close relationship with mother. Now women often have a, and again, this is it's complex. Some women, some some same-sex attracted women have an overly close identification with father. But some have a really scary father and they get a terrible dose of what masculinity is about from a really bad relationship with their father. So go figure, right? Now this may lead to an encouragement to imitate opposite-sex behavior and mannerisms. We all have seen this. And oftentimes a child can get what we call triangulated, kind of get caught in the middle, right? Where, where the mother might confide in the son because she doesn't like what's going on with her husband or take the son as, as a, a really close confidant. We call that emotional incest in my field. And, and what that does is it turns the son against the father. Well, a father can do that if he doesn't, he's not happy with the marriage and use the girl as a confidant and, and emotionally incest her. And turn the girl against her own femininity. Very complex. Again, these are all influences. There's no one cause. Peer mockery, terrible cause, right? Uh, many believe, uh, Dr. Fitzgibbons is one of them, that this is the most significant feature in the development of adolescent same-sex attraction, that gender inadequacy, we talked about that. Childhood sexual abuse, very, very common as a, an influence, a causative factor. Okay, and there was a study from 89 to 90, 1,001 adult homosexual and bisexual men who were attending an STD clinic, they were interviewed regarding potentially abusive sexual contacts during childhood, right? Child sexual abuse during childhood and adolescence. 37% of the participants reported they had been encouraged or forced to have sexual contact before the age of 19 with an older or more powerful partner. 94% of this occurred with men. The median age of the the participant, the first contact, the average age, was 10. The average age difference was 11 years. Okay, In the state of Maryland, four years is considered abuse. There's contact between children. 51% of those surveyed involved the use of force, and 33% involved anal sex. The black and Hispanic men seem to be in, in worse shape around this. 93% of the participants reported sexual contact with an older or more powerful partner classified as sexually abused. Now, in lesbianism, an astounding 90% of those studied by Ann Park in this book, good book, Restoring Sexual Identity, 90% experienced some form of abuse. Not just sexual, but emotional abuse, 70%. Sexual abuse was more than 60% and verbal abuse. Um, males outside the family, family friends, other family members, brothers, and even by women. Sibling issues, I talked about that enough. The cultural reinforcement, uh, Father Scalia again spoke brilliantly about the the devastating effect of being encouraged to, to come out at a young age, to sexually identify at a young age. Terrible. These myths um, reinforce all the stuff on the Internet. Uh, the the Gay-Straight Alliance in schools, Glisten, all all these people that are trying to encourage young people to come out at an early age. Uh, Depathologizing homosexuality had a tremendous effect. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And certainly the uh, Internet availability. Another myth, once gay, always gay. Not true. Men and women can change and be healed of same-sex attraction. Good psychotherapy. Now, I include chastity. I include spiritual direction. I include the growth in holiness as good therapy. The word is therapia, therapia in Greek. If you read your Greek New Testament, you'll see when Jesus healed, a lot of times the word is therapia. That's the Greek word. Jesus therapy. He was a good therapist. So good therapy combined with family, community, and pastoral care all contribute to the healing process. Catholic anthropology and theology are consistent with clinical experience. When the sin is out of the person's life, they are free to express their inborn heterosexuality. When there's forgiveness, Dr. Fitzgibbons writes about f- forgiveness all the time. In fact, the APA had him write a book about forgiveness, the therapeutic value of forgiveness. So again, there's a converging validity of theology and Psychotherapy, yes, people do change. The Spitzer Report, okay, Dr. Spitzer was the head of the committee of the American Psychiatric Association that in 1973 removed homosexuality from the diagnostic manual of, of mental disorders. In around 1999, he was going to an APA conference and some people from around here actually were picketing the conference And one of the guys, a friend of mine, confronted him and said, you're wrong. You were wrong then and you're wrong now. Where's your proof? So Spitzer was like me, I guess. He had a lot of neuroplasticity. He was interested in saying, well, I'm going to find out if if what I said was true. And he did a survey, and he surveyed ex-homosexuals who were out of the lifestyle for five years. He found that 64% of the men and 43% of the women considered themselves to be heterosexuals after they receive treatment. Now, that treatment could be the kind of religious treatment people get encouraged as well. People can and do change. Joan is a living witness to that here today. He said, like most psychiatrists, I thought that homosexual behavior could be resisted, but sexual orientation could not be changed. And that's why I'm such a lone ranger around here. There's, There's a few other therapists in this area who do this work, but most of them think the way Spitzer did I now believe that's untrue. Some people can and do change. There was a study done, a a a review of the literature by Jones and Yarhouse, uh, two of them in 2007 and nine, and they concluded that sexual orientation is changeable, right? They, They contradicted the view that it's not changeable. They said, yes, it is changeable, but also that the attempt to change is highly likely to be helpful and not harmful. That's the main complaint you get from the APA, that, well, people go through this and it harms them. The the studies are not showing that. They're showing that it does not harm people. There's a really good book out there by Jeffrey Satnover. Is it The Politics of Sexual Politics, something like that, Politics of Homosexuality? He talks about how that diagnostic criteria was changed. In 1973, Gay activists within psychiatry picketed the APA convention with intense opposition to normalizing homosexuality coming from only a few outspoken psychiatrists. They were demonized and even threatened rather than scientifically refuted. And so, at the American Psychiatric Association in 1973, the House of Delegates sidestepped the conflict and they put the matter to a vote of the membership marking the first time in the history of healthcare care that a diagnosis or lack of diagnosis was decided by popular vote rather than scientific evidence. You might call it popular bullying. The complaint about bullying goes both ways. So should a person even be allowed to have treatment? And there's been a debate at the APA American Psychological Association for many years as to whether or not a person should even be allowed to come for the therapy, whether a therapist like myself should be disbarred or, or delicensed for doing that. A past president of the APA, American Psychological Association, Robert Perloff, said the individual has the right to choose whether he or she will accept a gay identity. Right? Pro-choice in homosexual treatment, right? It is his or her choice, not that of an ideologically driven interest group, let the person choose. Let them self-determine. Even Freud, back in the day, said that it's, it's bullying, it's wrong for a therapist to determine the agenda of the client. To discourage a psychotherapist from undertaking a client wishing to convert is anti-research, anti-scholarship, and antithetical to the quest for truth. And, and this, this person does not have an ideological Christian bone in his body. He's he's strictly a humanist, but he's coming at it from a scientific point of view. So those are the myths. So the healing and pastoral care, there's a wonderful document entitled Ministry to Persons with a Homosexual Inclination, bishops put out in 2006. And these are the main points. We must respect human dignity. No violence against people with same-sex attraction. No discrimination. We must teach human sexuality in God's plan, again, as, as uh, Father Scalia did this morning. Let the church distinguish inclination, which is disordered, from action, which is sinful. Let there be a training in virtue toward holiness, especially chastity. And let there be friendships and support groups and community. So Christians who are homosexual are called, as all of us are, to a chaste life, the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Um, I think we said plenty this morning already about chastity. I, I totally, totally uh, reinforce it. It is, it is the first stage of, this, of, the psycho, of good psychotherapy, which I want to get to. The first stage is, we call it abstinence or continence, but it's really chastity, a person has to, you've got to cut off the destructive behavior and, and mindset in order to make room for, for the, the, the heterosexual built-in structure to take root, to activate. Uh, this is a wonderful quote, which I'm not going to go through for the sake of time, but the Pontifical Council for the Family wrote on the truth and meaning of human sexuality The last line here, I just have to read. Chastity is an apprenticeship in self-mastery, which is a training in human freedom. We think today that freedom means I can do whatever I want. That's the modern view of freedom. Freedom is the ability to love God. That's freedom. Freedom, when the obstacles to our ability to seek God and love God are removed, we're free. That's the real meaning of freedom. Freedom. So the sins against chastity, homosexuality is right on the list. We don't single it out as, as you know, the worst thing in the universe, but it is a sin against chastity, and, and, it, and it blocks our capacity to seek God. It, it, re, it limits our freedom, and it destroys our personality and our bodies, as we saw earlier. So healing and pastoral care, same-sex attraction may be successfully and ethically treated by the use of psychotherapy. And I've been doing this for many years. It's a very, very difficult psychotherapy. It's not for everyone. Um, people in, in the courage group, for example, uh, aim for chastity. And the chastity is a therapy. I want to I say that. But not, it, that, called the call to psychotherapy is not for everyone. It's very, very difficult. I call psychotherapy a guided tour through your personal hell without the benefit of anesthesia. It's not for everyone, and it's expensive. That having been said, it's, it's, it works when, for some people. And, again, the, the study by Spitzer showed about, it wasn't clear in my slide, but it's about a third, a third, a third. A third of the people who go for the healing are healed. They, they totally identify as heterosexual. The next third identify as heterosexual, but they still struggle with same-sex attractions. And the last third, God only knows why, didn't get it. They, they didn't get the benefit. So again, there's a converging validity. The magisterium says that homosexuality is objectively disordered and deserves pastoral care. Scientific research says homosexuality may be understood as an attachment disorder and and a a gender gender deficit. So what does the therapy look like? I'm just going to breeze through this really quick. First task, informed consent. Everybody that, that signs up with me has to sign a consent form that, that says they, they, know what, they know what this is, they know the risks, they, they know the may work, may not work, they know what the APA says. I make sure they know what all the uh, evidence against it is, all the arguments against it is, that, that they're signing up for something that, that is not uh, on every street corner here. So there's a form consent, full assessment, giving people hope that people can and do change. And there's beautiful DVD, I don't think they have the DVDs here about people change. I do exist is one. Um, There's a beautiful um, testimonial DVD that Courage put out, um, Profiles of Courage, I think it's called. Person's got to stop habitual sexual behaviors, right? That's chastity. Absolutely join a support group and develop same-sex friendships and frequent prayer and the sacraments and frequent prayer and the sacraments as well. The core tasks are building a healthy sense of self as male or female, developing self-knowledge through observation and feedback. That's the feedback that the therapist gives, is accurate feedback. And one a client of Nicolosi said, when a real man sees me as a real man, then I become a real man. Kind of a therapeutic velveteen rabbit, those of who've read that. There's got to be an appropriate self assertion, a masculine self assertion or a feminine self assertion that I am created good. Uh, What Father Scalia was talking about, the good of the person. I identify with the good of the person. That's who I am. It's a lot of work on family of origin issues, understanding the narrative of my life, developing virtues again. Did I mention chastity? (laughs) Renewing of the mind. There's got to be a healing so that there can be a proper identification with the same-sex parent Um, and certainly developing the chaste friendships with same-sex peers. Lots of forgiveness work, grief work. See, at the core of the attraction, when a person experiences this attraction, is wanting to go out towards someone of the same sex, that's a drive. That reparative drive is really a drive away from the pain of my gender deficit, of all the pain that I experienced growing up as a, as a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, and feeling inadequate. And at the very root of that is grief. Profound, gut-wrenching, sobbing grief. And that's why business is not better than it is. People don't want to go there. People do not want to go there, but that's, that's all All healing is grief healing. Grief is the fuel of this recovery. And the concluding tasks are developing healthy opposite-sex relationships and becoming active in church life. The support groups, Courage, we talked about, and Courage is for family members of of the Courage people. Homosexuals Anonymous, a wonderful group. Exodus International is an evangelical group uh, advocating, uh, mostly they're advocating healing. They're not as focused on the chastity. They don't have the theology of the body that we have. But, but they are focused on the Bible, and they're focused on healing. Uh, PFOX is a local group, Parents and Friends of Ex-Gays, Sexaholics Anonymous, for people with uh, the compulsive sexuality, which is rampant, 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 with same-sex attraction. Because you, you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to do something that doesn't work. You're looking for something in the wrong, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places. I was walking home the other night, and, and, and there was somebody, like, on the ground, you know, under the streetlight, just groping around. I thought they lost a the contact lens or something. I said, uh, what are you looking for? He said, I lost my wedding ring. I said, oh, let me help you look for it. So we're looking and looking. Finally, I said, are you sure you dropped it here? He said, no, I dropped it across the street. I said, well, why are you looking over here? He said, well, there's no light over there. I mentioned NARTH, Regeneration Books. Um, You can order these books and they come to you in a a plain envelope. Nobody knows where you got them. If you don't want to have your name on Amazon where all the other books, you know, associated with this start popping up at you, you never know what's going to happen. You order some on Amazon. The goals of courage, the five goals of courage I was billed as, I'm going to talk about this briefly, to live, number one, live chaste lives. Did I mention chastity? in accordance with the Roman Catholic Church's teaching on homosexuality. Number two, to dedicate one's life to Christ through service to others. Spiritual reading, prayer, meditation, individual spiritual direction, very important. Frequent attendance at Mass, frequent reception of the sacraments of reconciliation, Holy Eucharist. So number two, goal. Number three, foster a spirit of fellowship in which all may share their thoughts and experiences openly to to develop that that same-sex friendship, to heal all that attachment stuff. And also, so you're not alone. You're not alone. All healing is relational healing. It's healing from relational problems and all healing occurs in the context of relationship. Number four, to be mindful of the truth that chaste friendships are not only possible but absolutely necessary in a chaste Christian life, and doing so provide encouragement to one another, informing and sustaining them. And number five, live lives that may serve as good example to others. The 12 steps of courage, the the basic 12 steps of AA, but the first one that we admitted we were powerless over homosexuality, that our lives had become unmanageable. Say a word about prevention, really irks a lot of people to talk about this, but if there are influences that, that can generate this, there are ways to prevent those. There's some good books out there. There's a book by Joe Nicolosi and, and his wife on healing, on preventing, rather, the prevention of homosexuality. Basically, he's saying you strengthen the healthy relationship with same-sex parent. Uh, I might add there that you don't get in the way of, if you're the opposite-sex parent, you don't get in between same-sex parent and the child, you don't form that triangle, form an alliance against that same-sex parent. And be on the lookout for boys and girls who are lonely, who are disaffected from their own gender, from they're, they're feeling that sense of um, same-sex inferiority, those who don't fit in, who are alienated, those who lack close relationship with the same-sex parent. It's extremely, extremely important. And those who are in excessively hostile relationships or rivalries with their same sex siblings and losing, I might add, <laughs> not just in the rivalry, but losing the rivalry. End.
0: Okay. As I mentioned, we'll, we'll take a, a brief break uh, in, in just a moment or two. Did I mention we have books for sale? And reminded by Sabatino of the Institute of Catholic Culture, uh, to uh, sign up for their email distribution list, uh, the talks will be on their website, and uh, there are many other good uh, resources there, too. So I recommend that you get on their email distribution list for, and, and check out the other flyers and posters for upcoming events. Uh, the books that are available, when I went through the questions in the question box, um, I want to – a lot of them kind of sync with some of the books that, that are available there, especially uh, one that uh, Deacon Levy just recommended, which is A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. And then another one that's similar to that is Same-Sex Attractions, A Parent's Guide by Father Harvey and uh, Gerard Bradley. Uh, those are two good books that uh, – you know, for for parents – who who are uh, facing this situation. And uh, and then as regards the the political dimension of this, as Deacon indicated, Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth by Jeffrey Satinover, very good book. And I think probably a simpler, uh, more accessible one uh, is uh, One Man, One Woman by Dale O'Leary. So those are some of the ones that that I think in light of the questions that we went through, and there are a lot of questions that we won't be able to get to all of them, uh, in light of the questions, those are some books I think would I would recommend to you very highly. Uh, before the break, I also want to uh, m- mention the goals of courage as you saw posted there. So it always seemed to me that if you just remove the word homosexual or homose- homosexuality from the goals of courage, they would apply to everybody. And so it's uh, the, the members of courage are just trying to live a holiness of life and the same sex attractions are the occasion for that, not the obstacle so much as the occasion for encountering their own weakness and therefore encountering the strength of Christ. And finally, I, uh, before the break, I want to mention Encourage. Uh, Deacon touched on it. Encourage is a group for parents. We have a Courage chapter in our diocese. Uh, I'm the chaplain for that. The Encourage group. Is run by Father Pekorski out at St. Michael's in Annandale. Uh, they don't meet as frequently, but it's it's a very important group to help parents who are uh, struggling with how to uh, how to deal with with children who are living the lifestyle or are struggling with same sex attractions. How do the parents uh, or other family members then address the same issue? So I recommend that uh, that group as well. That can be both groups. Contact info for both groups can be found. On the website of the uh, Diocesan Office for Family Life. There's no way for us to get to all of the questions in the question box. It, it, the number of questions that were there is uh, proof of the, the need for uh, such conferences and, uh, and continued uh, study and reading and discussion of this topic. We have two chairs here uh, for uh, Deacon Levy and uh, for Jonah. Uh, so that they will be the sitting ducks. I, I, will, I will stand behind the podium. Okay. I've kind of uh, divided some of the questions up because certain themes came up in, in the questions. So uh, I'd like to just maybe uh, group the various cards into related points, and the most common of which was a question about family members. And how to reach out, how, how to uh, reach out to a family member who's in the lifestyle or who might be struggling, or how do you receive a family member who is in the lifestyle and wants your approval and wants to be acknowledged and identified as, as homosexual or gay or lesbian or you know, whatever the case might, may be. So I'll kind of toss that out there and, um, and have uh, these men respond, and I'll give a response as well. Uh, Thank you, Father, Um,
2: for reaching out to a family member. It's a wonderful question. Um, I think I would say uh, that it's make very clear that, you know, you love this son, daughter, or sibling, or whoever it may be, um, and that you see them as much more than this category that they're presenting themselves as. Um, I think it's been said many times today, um, but uh, we are much more than this silly label that uh, people tend to use. You know, we're, we're children of God, and we should n- oh, never forget that, uh, even if other people object to that or say, no, I'm, I'm this, I'm that. Um, you know, these labels are just silly, and um, it's an injustice to indulge that person in it, um, and it's also seeing them less than... For what less than what they are. And uh, I've heard a lot of stories of people insisting that their partner be able to sleep over at Christmas time or if, if so-and-so doesn't sleep in the same bed with me under your roof, then I'm never coming over there again. Um, you know, they can get into these types of struggles and uh, I think you have to be very clear what is allowed to go on in your homes and um, certainly you wouldn't, let a stranger do these things in your home, and and you wouldn't want someone that you love very much to do these things in your home. Um, But your expectation should always be for good behavior and not for bad behavior, regardless of the person's age. And uh, there are always hotels and motels if these people really feel the need to uh, do these things. But you you love your children more when you expect the best of them. Um, I think that's always true. I, I would
1: agree with everything uh, that Jonah said. I, a couple of points uh, I might add. I, I get a lot of uh, parents that bring uh, their adolescent, um, mostly the sons, uh, to me. Uh, one, one thing I would recommend is, is, is to not, not to try to change them. Um, they, they need to be loved. They need to be accepted in, in their personhood as Father Scalia was making that important distinction of the person. Uh, but, but all the pressure that I've seen parents try to put on their kids and, and the coercion and, and trying to get them to do things and make them do things, by the time they're at the point of coming out like this, I find that those attempts are not successful. And I, I've seen the same, I, I do get a lot of spouses, husbands coming because of uh, wives coming out in the lifestyle or wives, be more, or so wives because of husbands, but both. I like what Jonas said. You, you have to be clear of your boundaries for yourself. You don't, if you're in a position you're with a child, yes, you can impose criteria and boundaries and all that, but it's the boundaries of your own lifestyle, I think, and your own moral home. You can't be a 24-7 cop for, for an 18-year-old. Anyway, there's a lot more that can be said about that, but I'll, I'll leave it at that.
0: Uh, just let me add that uh, this is really just the living out of the gospel, isn't it? Uh, and uh, uh, loving the sinner, hating the sin, and this is going to be one of the most uh, difficult things. And at times we will look mean. At times our Lord looked mean. He, he didn't invite the money changers to leave the temple. He didn't say, "Well, gosh, you know, guys, all things considered, you know, do you think maybe you know, uh, uh, next time you could go outside and do it out there?" No, he he looked mean. Now, we don't obviously have permission to do the same thing as our Lord did in that context, but that principle of sometimes when we love properly, we will look mean to others. And even more importantly, we will be made to feel as though we are mean and intolerant. This is a very interesting thing because really the whole homosexual movement began with a request for tolerance, and now really that's all that we're asking is this, no we just want to be able to articulate what we believe and what what has traditionally been believed and uh and especially with you know parents they they shouldn't have be forced into a situation in which they have to approve of a, of a lifestyle so we have to be sometimes comfortable with looking mean a success story in this regard the woman I know, uh, very serious Catholic, daily communicant, she got to know a man in, in the area who was in a homosexual relationship. And they got to know each other just for some, some common work they, they, they were involved in. And uh, each one knew huh, that, okay, there's this pretty serious disagreement between the two of them. And they never really talked about it. It came up once, and the woman said, you know, let's just leave that. Okay, we have a good friendship. We have a good friendship, We have a good relationship but, you know, we're, we're just not going to go there. And, well, as time went on, uh, things changed in his life. And his, uh, his partner left him, and suddenly he was at a crossroads in life, and, and he felt a tug to, to leave the homosexual lifestyle. And what happened was the woman, who in some regards must have looked mean to him because she would not approve of his lifestyle, she became the person that he went to. She became the source of, of strength and stability. Uh, and so we, we have to keep in mind that what might look tough and mean at one point, down the road, we, it might be the best thing uh, that is available. And parents know this already, that, you know, uh, when, you, when you're mean to kids when they're little, well, you know, sometimes they come back and they need that strength later. And so the point is not that we are being mean, but... Well we feel bad, don't we? Because we don't want to hurt anyone else. And the point is, well, we're not hurting anyone to call them to be the best that they can be, as 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 Jonas said. Now uh along these lines, now I, I said that uh, they're sitting ducks, but now I'm gonna put them in the hot seat, okay, and try other puns. Uh and so uh Deacon Levy, I will put this to you first, okay, and it's it's a good question because uh, the Courage the Apostolate really approximates um, a 12-step program. It's not strictly speaking a 12-step program, but we do try to abide by those. And in, 12, in Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, a man will say, Hi, I'm Jack, and I'm an alcoholic. So the question that has been submitted, why does identifying with a disorder work with a 12-step but not with SSA, not with same-sex attractions? And so why in AA, for example, do all the members say, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic, but in Courage, we don't, we don't abide by that. We don't say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a homosexual. Uh, it, what do you think, perhaps, if you could shed some light on that distinction?
1: Sure. <clears throat> an alcoholic will, will say, come into a, an AA meeting and say, hi, I'm Barry, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, alcoholism is a disease. That's the framework of, of the 12-step program. We say that it's alcoholism. It's not alcohol-wasm. <laughs> so it's, it's a disease that continually may re-manifest. But it's really only in that context that an alcoholic is going to get up and say, I'm an alcoholic. They're not going to you know, fight you to the death for that moniker. They're, they're just going to do that. Whereas the um, person with same-sex attraction who, who falls into that um, error of identifying themselves with their attractions, goes around and, and is saying, "I am a homosexual. I am a homosexual. You have to know me this way, or you don't know me." It, it's 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 a it's a distortion of personhood. It's a distortion of, of of a God-createdness. Whereas the alcoholism is an identification that that there's a disease process that can always you know jump up and bite me. Whereas for for the, the You know, the person with same-sex attraction, they get so identified with it, they get distorted in their whole idea of what it is to be a man and a woman. So I'll tell you a joke about that, if I I may. So um, two, two gay men are standing on a street corner, and they're talking, and this beautiful, sexy woman walks by, and they look at her. And one guy says to the other guy, Wow, it's times like this, I wish I were a lesbian.
0: Bad jokes are, um, they come at ordination, okay? <laughs> uh, and, and let me just, uh, another thing to, to touch on that, alcohol is not an essential part of what it means to be human. And so uh, a lot of people who live um, perfectly happy lives and, and and never drink alcohol. But being sexual, that is, being male or female, is essential to being a person. Uh, there's no person in the world who is not either male or female. So my, my joke that I like to say is there are two kinds of people in this world, male and female, and, that, and, and that's it. And so that, that's why to identify oneself as, a, as an alcoholic does not carry the same weight and uh, doesn't have the same gravity uh, and lead to the same sense of inferiority as, as self-identifying uh, as, as homosexual. Uh, another question that is worth uh, addressing what do you say to someone who says it is a personal choice, they are not hurting anybody? Uh, thank
2: you, it's a very good question. Um, they're hurting themselves. Uh, they're hurting their everyone they have uh, connected with by relations, uh, friendship, family, everyone. I think you're doing, uh, you know, this argument is used over and over for drugs and prostitution, all kinds of things seen as know, solitary sins or something, uh, they're, they're hurting the people they're sexually involved with. I mean, there's, there's harm every which way you look at it. Uh, we live in society where we're like a fabric where all the individuals are like threads. And if we are good Catholics in a state of grace, uh, living good lives, uh, being good examples, we're like, we're like the circus tent with a flag held up by a pole. Uh, and we're pulling all the other threads of that fabric up with us because of where we're at. Uh, And if we're the inverse, if we're living a desolate life of sin, we're dragging everyone down. Every one of these persons who makes this claim has at least a mother and a father, probably friends and probably siblings and other relations that are all affected by their choices uh, nothing is done in secret that doesn't affect uh, us and everyone that we are connected with. Uh, and even strangers see us and see our example, uh, whether it's a good example or a bad example.
0: Uh, you know, a couple things in, in this regard. Uh, it touches on the privatization of morality. And that this is one of the biggest myths that's been foisted upon our culture that morality is a private issue. Well, uh, as, as Jonah said so well, it's, it's never private because we, we are always connected to one another. And so that what, what, what's sort of tearing me apart because I'm living an immoral life, well, that's going to have an effect on the people that I interact with. Morality is never an entirely private issue. Now, of course, there are sins that are, that are unknown, and they're private in that way. Uh, that's why we've got confession, you know, and it doesn't have to be face-to-face, right? But the living of a moral life is very public because it does influence everyone. And we can see how this has changed, even in civil law. I mean, years ago, there were laws against contraception that were put on the books by Protestants. And the thinking was, well, what happens in marriage is not entirely a private matter, because the health of marriage benefits everyone. And if a marriage is not being lived properly that harms everyone as well. And so eventually, of course, it was, you know, people were convinced that what a husband and wife do privately is nobody else's business. And so contraception was legalized, the rate increased and sort of the divorce rate, surprisingly, right? And so the privatization of morality is one of the big problems here. Another way of understanding this, and this is this is not my my uh, thought. I I don't like original thoughts. Okay, they scare me, so I don't have any of my own. Um, but uh, if I were making counterfeit money, and I had a you know a counterfeit machine in my in my in my rectory, wouldn't that be great? You know, right? And you you might say, Father, all the better. We won't put in as much of the collection, right? Um, but if I were counterfeiting money, and I said, Well, what does it matter to you? I'm not harming you. I'm not taking your money away, am I? I'm not putting a gun to your head and say, give me your money. You can still go use your money, can't you? Well, it does hurt you because it devalues the entire currency. Introducing counterfeit money into the supply devalues the entire currency. And a similar thing happens with morality. If people say, well, I'm not hurting anyone else, first of all, that's wrong. Uh, because just by – they're hurting themselves, and that's, that's pretty serious. But secondly, they're devaluing the entire currency of morality by introducing sort of a discordant note to that. I would like also to address – well, th- these things are somewhat related, so I'll have them back to back. First of all, the name-calling. And uh, Deacon, I imagine that you have run into that in your in, in your in your practice. If you could speak to, you know, the issue of the name calling has become you know very prominent recently, and now you know it's a big a- initiative against bullying and things like that. Name calling stinks.
1: I, I did speak about it as as one of the uh, contributing factors uh, to a sense of gender deficit. It's so egregious. The. The, the gift of speech was given to us by God to build one another up and to speak the truth and and we use it to tear one another down and to hide from each other and to speak lies. Remember Jesus is the Word of God. Words are important what we say can affirm or can destroy people in their identity in in their in their sense of self and so much of this uh, disorder is. It's a, uh, an identity disorder and our identity is built up by a reflection from a loving other. We first know who we are when we're a baby and we're gazing at mother. That's the first face of God in our lives, is that gaze and that mirroring and that affirmation. And that needs to come from one
0: another by word as well as by gaze. A couple of years ago, I was leading a youth group uh, on a hike, uh, going up Old Rag, and uh, one of the kids in the group said something to to another kid. He and uh, and he he's I don't know exact the exact context, but what I heard from him was that's so gay. And um, he never knew what hit him. I, I can't. I, I came down on him like a ton of bricks and uh and uh, in you know in retrospect it was probably completely disproportionate. Uh and, and from his point of view it was even more so. So in, in working with uh men and women in, in courage and in doing a lot of reading on this issue, it's it's amazing how painful uh the words can be. Uh, the, the the old line, sticks and stones can break my bones, but you know, words will never hurt me. It's it's nonsense. <laughs> a lot of times the words are actually more painful because they cut to the heart of who we are and not just to the physical body. And so uh now this cuts in both directions, right? It means we shouldn't use words to harm, but but neither should we use words to make things less clear. Precision in terms and charity in terms is uh is required of us. Now along uh these lines perhaps we could discuss a little bit the, the what's been in the news recently regarding the suicides uh, the most notable of which of course the student from rutgers and uh, th- this question raises the possibility that these are taking place not not as a result of being uh, of having ssa but the depression that might ensue from living the lifestyle or whatever other attendant issues might be there
1: Suicide and depression certainly do go together. Uh, they're, they're highly correlated. The You know, the sense of, of despair. In, in many respects, I, I consider uh, suicide a function of shame, and, and shame is, is a hugely uh, influential issue in, in, in same-sex attraction. Uh, I call suicide the last stop on the shame train, when I, I'm no good, I hate myself, the world would be a better place without me. See, there's a tremendous uh, violence in, in the uh, same-sex attraction world. Uh, there's a lot of complaints about the violence, and rightly so, right? Any violence is wrong about the violence of, of the heterosexual world against the homosexuals, they say. But actually, most of the violence and most of the damage done uh, to people in the gay lifestyle are done by each other toward one another because there's a tremendous uh, ambivalence is there's a, a love-hate relationship with the masculine. So when that hatred is turned against me and that violence is turned against me, against myself, uh, I, I think it's a part of the the, the syndrome and, and you saw what the suicide statistics are. And yes, I, I certainly would agree that some of that is homophobia, but homophobia is, is a fear, it's an irrational fear of the same-sex attraction of the homosexual condition. When we speak about it and we speak uh, with precision and with clarity, we're not homophobic. We're not afraid of the condition. We're, we're speaking truth into it. And and I would not accept the homophobic uh, label uh, in, in doing this work. All the church documents and everything I ever say and everything I read uh, absolutely uh, speaks against the, the, the violence that, that would generate the kind of self-hate and shame that would result in, in such a tragic suicide. Uh, th- this week, I, in preparation for this, I had heard about the, uh, the YouTube presentation, uh, It Gets Better. Have you all seen that? I, I, I would want to do one. I don't think I probably would, but I would want to do it. It gets better with Christ. It gets better with healing. It gets better with truth. It gets better with holiness.
0: The YouTube presentation he's talking about is uh, d- directed towards uh, adolescents with same-sex attractions and trying to reassure them that it gets better uh, because they're, they're facing these difficulties, this depression and things, and, uh, and just reassuring them to, you know, to persevere. Uh, and, and and born probably, you know, certainly have good, good motives, right? You don't want people to... Uh, to take their own lives. But uh, the, the solution that's being proposed, of course, uh, which is perseverance in, in the gay lifestyle, that, that's ultimately not the right solution. So, why don't we stand and conclude? I'll uh, impart a blessing. The Lord be with you. Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, her most chaste spouse, may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. Or call us at 540 635 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.